good evening. Welcome to the Daily Mumble. Top three. I've recently discovered the power of a top three. There was a movie, I believe, called Top Five, a Chris Rock thing around barbershop conversation and the idea of uh, top five dead or alive MCs. Recently, there was a team building exercise where someone had the idea to get everyone on a shared social media platform to post their three favorite songs or the three songs they thought they were best top three songs and each person had a day and sort of in turn could do that and when it was my turn I found it really interesting because what I like about a top three as opposed to a top five or top ten is a top three forces you to make some really hard choices if you actually think about it deeply and uh, and fully and uh, as a genuine and it works for anything whether it's uh, top three songs top three movies top three albums top three athletes anything you anything you would think of there are some really uh, really interesting choices you, you it forces you to make so often the top three isn't actually I think a top ten a top ten really enables you to be a little bit cute um, and the and it kind of allows you to be fully representative. Like if you were doing a top 10 albums, you could really capture what, or top 10 movies, you could really capture who you are as a fully formed cultural savant, as it were. You could capture your full, you could, let people know this is the full sense of uh, of who I am and this is me a fully rounded person with uh, with these little niche tastes as well these these things I'm going to elevate to to make you think I I know what's important but at the same time have these mainstay culture mainstay signifiers that we all sort of agree on and when you bring it down to a top five your ability to do that is lessened but it is still somewhat present you could at least have one of your top five as kind of something that you that specifically pertains to you and your taste or what you think is important but still have a top five that is broadly representative and declares you to be a uh, a person of taste and distinction as it were 
And what a top three really forces you to do is make some hard decisions about who and what you think is important. And someone or something has to be left off. Now, for me, my top three, and I sort of had a day to do it really, 24 hours to think about it, and I went back and forth a lot around it, but essentially I knew that there had to be, that the song that absolutely had to be on there was A Day Day in the Life by The Beatles which is the last song on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It, one, it's on my favourite album of all time. Two, it genuinely is my favourite song of all time. Three, it's a song that really has been with me my whole life. It is a song that has been part of my life, my whole life, as long as I can remember. And then further to that, it is within the Beatles catalogue, a song that perhaps most clearly and distinctly demonstrates the strength of the McCartney and Lennon songwriting partnership, but at the same time as illuminating the differences in their songwriting styles and emphases and their tone. It, it, it has basically a clear tonal shift back and forth between, between them. And then beyond, beyond that, it is an incredible example of George Martin's production and his influence and his role in the Beatles and their uh, success and their musical longevity and that so it actually and that's something that's really important to me I actually wonder if in a hundred years time when we analyse popular music we won't so much look at the artists necessarily as we'll come back and look more at the producers as we kind of look at composers nowadays far more than the people who actually played the compositions when they were first published. We far more look to the people who compose them. Will we look at the producers and their influence and their common touch across a range of artists and genres rather than the individual artists in question? I don't know when it seems like we're far more even 50 years on now, far more uh, interested in the Beatles than we are in George Martin, Um, just like we're far more interested in Bowie than we are in the various producers he worked with and their influence per se. But producers and their role and influence are something that's really important to me and A Day in the Life represents that as well as well as the use of an orchestra and that role in particularly the Beatles' later sound, as well as that you had both the unity 
of the Beatles with Lennon and McCartney, and then, but also the tension is sort of bubbling underneath in the recording, the, the, the tensions that are starting to really come to the fore and be expressed, and the fraying of the band is present in that song as well. So, and for me, it really is the song that makes me think the most of my childhood and brings back a whole host of memories and emotions and emotional shades and colours. It really is like a painting that's painted in broad swaths of uh, really a whole range of colours that are both uh, really almost electric in their fear and soothing in their comfort. It's... um. It's a song that never fails to to evoke an emotional reaction in me. So it was pretty clear that that a day in the life had to had to be on there. Um, if I was really taking this seriously, the back and forth was around what kind of way to go of it. The songs I ended up choosing, the other two songs were Nothing Else Matters by Metallica and Street Spirit by uh, Brackets Fade Out by Radiohead and I guess part of what I had an issue there is that from the perspective of just purely surface perception they are both relatively slow, sort of sad songs or soft songs. The guitars and the amplification and any distortion are, are very muted. They're they're very they're not smooth, but they they're softer in tone, particularly obviously for Metallica. But what they do have is a representation of two of my favourite bands in Metallica and Radiohead and particularly with Nothing Else Matters the song of basically the song the song that most encapsulates my teenage years sort of hours with the CD player on repeat and just the Black Album and track number 8 just going on endlessly and me just sort of being in my room and emoting I guess about everything (laughs) as it were, I, I can't even I couldn't even tie it to any particular thing or events or circumstance it was just a a vehicle for where the somehow that emotional it allowed it seemed to give a freedom for emotions to come out without the exhaustion of say rage that would be in a heavier harder driving song it was sort of a space where you could just emote 
about, probably about being realistically 13. <laughs> um, but it was also the song that my wife walked down the aisle to at our wedding. So it is a song that has a tremendous import and resonance in my life and in our lives now and just a, a, a real beauty to it and a real presence around it and basically in the end I for all the songs I considered I I sort of had a theme of uh Like life, marriage, and then death, and street spirit is the is a song that should I die, I would I want played at my funeral. Um, it's just a song that is always had a, a tremendous impact upon me actually a song that sort of is so it almost takes emotion and emotional expression through so far that it goes beyond the mere or the, the, the actual expression of individual emotions and takes it past that out through and breaks down that wall and takes it out to the other side where you can sort of have that emotion and it can exist but there's a tremendous peace in it there's a tremendous peace in and freedom in that emotion it exists it's, it's expressed it's out there there is and then there's just this lovely freedom where you can acknowledge that but you're not bound to it and chained to it. it, you can acknowledge it and just let it, let it exist. So that sort of birth, marriage, death had a nice bookended feel to it and there are th three songs that have clear and tangible influences and presence in my life. So. In the end, they, that was the clear and obvious way to go. However, obviously it means that there are so many songs and genres that were left unrepresented and that is the challenge of a top three. It sort of, it basically, obviously is all rock songs uh, particularly two out of them are far more slower sort of slower songs but there was no room to represent other artists or other genres or other modes of songwriting that I would, uh, that I value and, and have gained, have had great benefit from. So, 
there was a, uh, you know, the biggest, the most obvious one is there was no hip-hop, and hip-hop has been a massive influence a part of my life, and really, the only song that I, what I sort of wavered with was the song, um, Step Into a World by KRS-One, where basically it, it goes full circle and they have a, so they have, he has a vocalist singing Deborah Harry's part from Blondie's Rapture, which has the nice touch of being a band that, because my d- dad loved Blondie, was a band whose music I heard a lot growing up, so again, were a big part of my childhood, and beyond that, just some of the best one-liners, sort of essence of hip-hop lyricism from one of the best to ever do it in, in the Blastmaster KRS-One, um, you know, I'm not saying I'm number one, oh, I'm sorry, I lied, I'm number one, two, three, four, and five, you know, um, a dope MC is a dope MC, without, or without a record deal, all can see, and that's what KRS do, son, I'm not the run of the mill, because for the mill I don't run, I love it, I love it, I love that kind of elemental hip-hop lyricism, where it's wordplay, and it's flipping meanings and reversing and symbolism and just everything is epic it's you know it was that really I really ummed and art about that particularly over against uh, Radiohead but in the end it was you know it's sort of that top three with that that hard decision I also was sort of thinking there's, I love narrative storytelling in songs, and there's a song by the, a band from the 1960s called The Straubs. Um, the Hangman and the Papist and it tells the story of a young man condemned to die the charges are read out it's sort of the square it it sets the scene of the village square in the morning as the, the dawn comes and the as the villagers gather around and the charges of red against this young man. He has failed to pay allegiance to the king. His crime is thus with God himself and in his name he must hang. The, uh, it's beautiful songwriting. It's uh, lyrically really, really strong. It evokes this real powerful sense of 
presence and of being able to set a scene that's this medi sort of quasi-medieval takes you to this quasi-medieval place but with using uh, you know guitars and drums essentially it's uh, a truly a wonderful song and it really represents that sort of storytelling that I I do love I love narratives uh, narrative storytelling in in songs so that was another hard one to leave off. I don't know if they'd have been a top five. I, I'm pretty sure I would have had a KRS one in there. I maybe would have had would have had the uh, the Hangman in the papers. I'm not I'm not sure. The uh, and then there were a whole bunch of other songs like um, Don't Fear the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult which is a song that I absolutely love and then possibly a song that I I sort of it's the song I probably like to hear the most. I don't know if it's one of my all-time favorite, like five favorite songs. It may be. I sort of haven't. I, I, it's, it's, I can't really quite place it. Some of my other favorite bands are um, Sonic Youth and Violent Femmes. And the Violent Femmes are amazing. And Sonic Youth is amazing. Um, the with with Sonic Youth, it's probably more generally the overall tone of their music and their catalogue, rather than specific songs to point to as, as overarchingly significant for me. With the Violent Femmes, it's a little bit more that they're, you can, that I can pick out songs and, and point to, and obviously Blister in the Sun is just a hugely fun song, but also I love that dichotomy of it, the, the sort of joyous song, but then the, the tonal shift where suddenly it gets really quiet and whispering, and then the lyrics, which are sort of sung in a really fun almost silly way but actually have tremendous meaning and importance and sort of uh, a macabre or disturbing strangeness to them when whispered take on a different sheen and meaning um, it's really like both a raucous and sort of contemplative song it's, it's, it's so strange but it's not that one it's a song called Color Me Once that they did for the soundtrack to the movie, movie The Crow which is a movie that if we're talking about my top three movies I would have to mention I don't know if I would put it in my top three but would definitely have to mention think about and discuss and certainly also same movie if I was talking about top three albums 
the Crow soundtrack would definitely have to be considered. But Color Me Once is a song that really is quite different from a lot of the Violent Femmes catalog. Um, and it just has the, but it sort of has these commonalities in the uh, the lyrics and the mix of uh, very significant and somewhat silly or uh, almost subversive in terms of uh, the tone or meaning of the song, and then just brilliant instrumentation, particularly the bass playing. On, on that, the breakdowns and some of the bass lines are just absolutely unreal. Um, and I, I mean, it's just a song I just love. I could easily take a long drive with that song just playing on repeat and just be sort of in my thoughts and find that quite, quite profitable and, and beneficial. So it was definitely a I'd say there was probably an alternate top three, which would have been Color Me Once, The Hangman, and The Papers, and Step Into a World, but I don't know if those would have been four, five, and six, as it were. And then on top of that, there was there's a hip-hop song, there's a couple of hip-hop songs that I, where the lyricism just is incredible. Um, song by the rapper Exhibit that's called Paparazzi. Um, and then a song by a group called the Alcoholics or the Licks called Contents Under Pressure. And what I love about Contents Under Pressure is it sort of takes, um, different examples and talks about sort of the pressure that exists in, in life and it does it in such a just boast, a boastful and skillful way uh, look who you got before you uh, there's two main rappers in Alcoholics Tash and J-Row look who you got before you Tash the Top Gunner trying to stay afloat while the current pulls you under Read what it says, full licks on the bulletin With skills they couldn't teach your ass like Cal State Fullerton I'm in the zone like the bulls at home With mad stains on my shirt from the beer and foam um, And there's a like If I tend to take 10 steps and turn around I'll destroy ya My styles be lumping fools like I'm Oscar De La Hoya Look um, Look who you got before you Catch the top gunner trying to stay afloat While the current pulls you under You know, it just just beautiful, you know, beautiful lyricism, just, you know, top level. So, there's sort of all these different ones that really, a top three just forces you, forces you to make some really hard decisions about what is important to me. You know, there, there was another thing, there was no, you know, there was definitely producers and artists that I think are really important that just couldn't couldn't get on there there was no Rolling Stones you know Painted Black is one of my favourite songs 
would definitely be under heavy consideration for a top 10. You know, didn't even really come up for that. Uh, no Pink Floyd. There was uh, really no, like there was no Damon, Damon Albarn, like no Gorillas, especially. Demon Days, I think, is an incredible album. The, um, there was no Danger Mouse as a producer, nothing that he'd been involved with, whether the Gorillas or Good, the Bad, and the Queen, both obviously Damon Albarn projects. No, nothing around Niles Barkley that he was part of or any of the other work he's done, like the uh, soundtrack album, Rome, which is to a, a soundtrack to a movie that doesn't exist, and it's basically him working with various artists and, and creating this, this incredible soundscape, which is absolutely amazing, and, you know, couldn't, didn't, couldn't even find any space to even consider that at the time. Uh, no classical music. The composer for a... I probably his Requiem is one of my favourite pieces definitely one of my favourite classical pieces one of my favourite uh, sort of pieces of, of art ever just no room to to find a way for any classical either there's you know it, it I'm very content with my top three I think it's an honest and truly representative to, of, of the sort of core of me as a person and particularly as an artist at the same time it's far from capturing all the fully orb nuance of a person and their you know the sort of uh, various multitudes that we contain I mean if we would have take it to say movies for instance and a top three okay obviously for me the first thing would be is it, am I going to go with Godfather 1 or Godfather 2 and I'm really not going to put them both on there because really the nice argument would be to consider it as a single movie so to speak but I'd, I'd probably lean to the first one. Though, I think it probably holds together. They're both amazing and epic. I think the, the criticism I would have is that the two narrative structure of the second Godfather is not it's not jarring it's just not as smoothly executed as it could have been and that is a critique not a criticism because I love both of those movies the I, and I would argue that the 
Godfather really shows all four of the Corleone children. in their in sort of in a natural light or in what they in their true character and of course you have the advantage of basically a trading an epic Marlon Brando performance for a epic Robert De Niro performance I guess I think Brando's performance was just that bit stronger and he had more of a to be fair he had more of a palette to play with and a whole movie rather than sort of half a movie so he had some advantages there but I'd say okay that's the first question answered Godfather 1 or Godfather 2 we're going Godfather I could easily change my mind on that tomorrow because there are some scenes in The Godfather 2 that are just so resonant, so strong, so powerful. But we'll go with Godfather. We'll go with the first Godfather. Okay, um. What next? The next question would be, alright, which Tarantino movie? The... Probably have... I'd have to say that... The... Kill Bill... The Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2 are... Absolutely incredible, and they might be his peak and his best work ever. The Tarantino movie I probably enjoy most is probably Django. But it is difficult to understate the visceral sensation of being 16 years old and seeing Pulp Fiction on a VHS video for the first time, not being steeped in movie culture or the history of cinema, and this incredible, amazing, almost series of body blows that, you know, it was like being, sort of going, watching that was like going 12 rounds with a with a heavyweight boxer in their prime it was just 
you're just taking blow after blow after blow. It was incredible and so amazingly every scene every actor the execution of it all the way that the different narrative parts were woven together the way that the you know sort of peak performances for so many actors the yeah it's got to be Pulp Fiction I mean it's as much as I love Shawshank as much as I enjoy Forrest Gump Pulp Fiction should have won Best Picture it really 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 should it is an absolutely mind-blowing movie. It is incredible. Incredible. So, it's got to be Pulp Fiction. The third one becomes a little bit more complicated. I'm just doing these off the top of my head. And essentially, is it that the go of that late 90s cinema is there an actor that it would be great to capture is there something from a prior era that's really resonant and important sort of got a two sort of you know, a, a 70, mid sort of Hollywood's auteur peak 70s movie from Francis Ford Coppola, a sort of cusp of the mid-90s independent art house cinema boom with, and Quentin Tarantino with Pulp Fiction. The... most incredible movie that I've seen recently is a movie called Phantom Thread and the director's name is obvious and I should be saying it because he's the guy who directed Boogie Nights and guys worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman so many times and he's you know all these all these things yet I cannot bring his name to my memory and he's worked with Daniel Day-Lewis so many times and he did their Wolf Blood which incidentally is a movie that I think is amazingly directed amazingly acted amazing cinematography amazing production I'm sure the craft services on it were incredible everything about it is amazing and yet I hate that movie I really 
I remember watching it at the cinema and being really engrossed and interested in it. And it's quite a long movie and sort of watching it and spoiler at the end I remember with about 10 minutes left to go looking at my watch and thinking hang on there's 10 minutes left to go and we're not really heading for any sort of resolution or any sort of meaning or anything of that nature oh oh man okay and Basically, it became, to me, this exquisite statement of existential nothingness, which you would think I would love, but to me was just completely and utterly empty and void in the worst way. It was so good that to tangibly not have meaning was... yeah, was really a letdown and a cop-out. So, that's sort of me on um, on There Will Be Blood. But Phantom Thread being, I guess, a smaller tale was I found exquisite. Obviously, Daniel Day-Lewis is acting, as always, impeccable. Um, the little... This one, particularly, the little touches and flourishes were really just delightful. I liked that the movie spoke... Different parts of the movie spoke to each other. There was kind of this call and response that was occurring across scenes which sort of lands it far more in reality and how people are in that we don't neatly resolve scene and go that we don't even sort of one person speaks and life goes on and occurs and then at some point there's an emotional response to it and in this movie the emotional response was strange but delightful and I I really appreciated that so yeah I I'd, I'd say out of modern movies that's the one that I have appreciated and enjoyed the most recently uh, it does seem a little bit odd given the last 10 to 11 years of cinema not to have a superhero movie on there. Uh, the ones that I would think about were the first Iron Man movie and Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Um, I'm probably... I imagine in five years' time, I'll look at it differently, but I'm probably just not ready to go there yet with superhero movies. Um, if I was, I guess a type of movie I really love, 
that doesn't get a lot of both respect or appreciation uh, let's just call them the rollicking sort of adventure movies and the 90s had a few of these uh, Hellboy was one of the best out of them all Hellboy 2 was still good uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen which seems to get hated on by critics I love it it's just such a fun movie it's so enjoyable it doesn't it's just it's great I I I don't I get technically and artistically there are some critiques and from genuine criticism you can have but on the whole it's just it's great fun and I'm all the way in it um particularly Hellboy Hellboy which I guess gave rise to Shape of Water because really the friend in Hellboy the other sort of oddly powered human is uh, <laughs> is basically the creature that uh, that Guillermo <laughs> focuses on in Shape of Water. Um, the and even shall we say Sky Captain and The Age of Tomorrow. I love that movie. Um, and I'm not a fan of Jude Law, <laughs> but that is just a fun, fun, fun movie. Uh, so those sort of movies I don't think get a lot of appreciation at all and are really enjoyable. Uh, I'll still stand by the tra first Transformers movie, and I'm not talking about the Michael Bay first Transformers movie, um, which was a solid movie, particularly the non-robots, like the non-Transformers scene. I, I would have... Uh, the Michael Bay does military people... There's people really going about their jobs really well. Like, take the... It conveys a weight and import to people working, like the drillers in Armageddon on the drill rig. Um, the soldiers at the military base so I I think that's a solid movie but the first Transformers movie from the 1980s the animated cartoon full length feature film with the last screen performance at least with his voice of Orson Welles was probably the defining movie of my childhood that was amazing it's the movie I've seen most in my life and I just love it you cannot fault that movie to me at all still holds up to my mind still holds up but realistically for a top three I'd say ones I have to consider are Fight Club. That just has a level of... Uh, there's a multitude. As a text, it speaks on multiple levels. And also, it speaks in that it wasn't a hit 
when it first came out due to kind of a failure of marketing to some degree. It seems a failure of understanding what they had as a studio. The it also speaks as the power of DVD sales where it sort of came back around and its importance was noted then. The um, kind of the being able to compare it to a source text in Chuck Palahniuk's book and his intention as opposed to the director's intention as opposed to the actor's choices the reveal the things that it spoke to about our society and about capitalism and consumerism things that it said about mental illness a whole host of things going on there and a whole host of things to unpack and take out and meaning to find or to negate which I love um usual suspects as sort of a story that you can that a once off viewing basically perfectly executed I mean there is neck there's nothing Benicio's performance in that wow there's neck I don't know what you can really fault in that movie um obviously now there's plenty to fault in that Kevin Spacey exists and has done things done terrible things and therefore it becomes an exercise in how you separate the artist from the art and I don't know how you can and in the case of Kevin Spacey it would be very difficult to do so because it seems quite clear that the emptiness that is in him that allows him to sort of fill in in performances may be a direct result of terrible things having been done to him by his dad by his father, shall we say, because the, and that's something that's really difficult to wrestle with and understand the complexities of, uh, a more modern movie, Sicario, again, a story very well told, great performances, particularly from Benicio, it's kind of, it would be nice to have either Benicio or Daniel Day-Lewis be able to be represented on there, um, but I'm probably going to go with what I think is the most perfect movie because I can't really fault it. I can't fault the performances. I can't fault the lead role. I can't fault the film 
I can't fault the performances as potential metaphor. I can't fault the meaning. I can't fault the question that it leaves you with. I cannot fault the execution from both a perspective of cinematography and effects. That would be Inception. And Leo is definitely not one of my favorite actors. Not that I have anything against him. But I think he's great in that role. He plays it just right. Um, Yeah. Inception for me. So, we've got a 70s, a 90s, and sort of late to, you know, late 2000s movie, which kind of encapsulate the movie periods that are most, have most resonated with me, and I think Inception is probably the most singular and perfect of all of those movies in, in execution. They are all to some degree, they just, yeah, I'd, I'd say they're the most representative for me of what I appreciate in movies. So that, I think, demonstrates the power of the top three because it shows also the difficult decisions that one has to make to actually get to a top three. And I didn't even mention The Crow after all, did I? Which uh, really is probably one of my most favorite movies and has this incredible gothic feel that I just love, which is this obviously given incredible resonance by the death of Brandon Lee. Um, is basically a really simple story. The suspension of disbelief is not that, like, you basically just have to suspend disbelief once, so to speak, and then it's, yeah, it's quite, quite amazing. And probably the other movie that I didn't mention that would have been worth mentioning is The Dark Knight. And I would probably say is the best superhero movie, that's pretty clear. But at the same time, is not the one that I would go to first and foremost, but is definitely a incredible movie from an incredible filmmaker. But yeah, 
Godfather Part 1 or the first one Pulp Fiction and Inception Cheers!